0: Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. As, uh, as we just read, we will be continuing in the book of 1 John. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible here. And uh, so we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25 uh, today. And as you make your way there, I want to remind you that we are just 18 days away from October 31st, which, as everyone knows, is... My wife's birthday, that is correct, absolutely. So make sure you shower her with gifts. In addition to being my wife's birthday, some of you might also know it as Reformation Day, right? It's also Halloween, but uh, let's talk about Reformation Day, okay? So it's the 502nd anniversary of the day when uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And, And so what was it? that uh, kind of sparked this Reformation. This, this Reformation, the reason that you and I are here today, the reason that we are reading from an English Bible, the reason that I am actually speaking right now to you in English and not Latin, the reason that uh, we boast in these doctrines like justification by grace alone, through faith alone, is because of the, uh, the kind of the match that was struck there, October 31st, uh, 1517. And so why was it that Luther was so disturbed? Well, it's because he looks around at the church, uh, the, the medieval Roman Catholic church, and he sees it looks very, very different from the church that he reads about in Scripture the church that he reads about in the early church fathers, and so he is bothered. Now initially, he is not at the point where he'll eventually get where uh, he calls the the Pope the Antichrist and the Roman Catholics uh, respond by basically declaring all Protestants to be uh, anathema, but initially he's disturbed especially because of this practice of indulgences. If you know what an indulgence is, it's a payment that you make uh, to the Roman Catholic Church in order for some degree of forgiveness of sins. And so it would uh, 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 it would provide a degree of relief in regards to purgatory. So if you know the, the doctrine of purgatory, purgatory in Roman Catholic theology is not for unbelievers. Purgatory is actually for believers, but you're not fully forgiven. You're not fully cleansed whenever you die. And so you have to go to purgatory for a period of time So that you can purge, that's the the, the purg in purgatory, so that you can be purged of your sins. So maybe you have to spend a hundred years in purgatory or maybe a thousand years or five thousand years or whatever it is, but eventually you get out and that's when you get heaven. Now, there is this practice of selling indulgences. Basically, you could give money to the church, especially so that they could build or or rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, and uh, so you're giving them money in exchange for a period of time off of purgatory. If you give more, you get more time off. So instead of spending a 1,000 years in there, maybe you only spend 500 or 400 or 300 or whatever it might be. And so uh, uh, Luther didn't originally object to indulgences in and of themselves. He objects to their abuses. And so he looks around and he sees this abuse of, uh, of indulgences, especially with uh, preachers like Johann Tetzel and his, uh, the, the famous phrase, whenever a coin in the coffer uh, rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so he objects to the abuse of indulgences and he looks around and he sees that cardinals and bishops are corrupt and the Pope is immoral and, uh, and there's doctrines like purgatory and all of these sorts of things. And so you have this uh, start of the, uh, the Reformation, this protest. Which is why we're called Protestants, Protestants. You have this start there in uh, in 1517. Now, the reason that is important is because one of the founding, one of the main sort of phrases, foundational phrases of the Reformation is this Latin phrase, ad fontes, which means go back to the beginning, go back to the source. And that's the exact same thing that we see in our text today. Luther and the other reformers, Calvin and Zwingli and so forth, would tell their people, go back to the beginning. Don't look at the medieval Roman Catholic Church for your understanding of life and salvation and the church and so forth. Instead, go back to the beginning. Go back to the fount. Go back to the origin. Go back to Scripture and the church fathers. And that's similar to what we see in our text this morning, where, uh, where John is going to tell his people, go back to what was in the beginning. Go back to the origin. Go back to the source, ad fontes. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive in together. I often ask you just to pray for yourself first. You come in here with uh, the potential to be distracted to have a divided heart or mind, and so just would ask that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you grace this morning to hear his word and to heed it. And then would you pray a similar prayer for us collectively as a church, for those around you, whether they are friends or strangers or family or whatever it might be. And then, lastly, would you pray for me for faithfulness and boldness and proclaiming God's word? So, Father, we're grateful for the opportunity we have this morning to gather together and uh, to consider Your Word together, and pray that You would give us a collective. Um, mind to understand your scripture a collective heart to apply your scripture to our lives that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we look upon and consider your son empowered by your holy spirit and so would you speak to us through your scriptures we ask these things because you're good and you do good and so we pray in christ's name amen Let's begin in 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. 1 John 2, 24, which says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. We'll start with that first phrase there. Let what you heard from the beginning abide abide in you. And Before we really begin to explore what that means, we need to be reminded of the context. And so two, the, t- the, the final two verses that we considered in our text last week says this, verses 22 through 23, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father Also, so I want you to notice something there about that passage. Notice how John, there in verses 22 and 23, is writing in the third person. He says he, and he says no one, and he says whoever. But now, notice as we shift back to our text today, 24 through 25. Notice how John is going to shift back to the second person by saying you, and it's actually going to be plural. So, if we're in the south, how would we pronounce this? Y'all, right? You all. This is actually plural. If you're like in a mobster movie or something, how would they say it? You skies or something like that, all right? And, uh, And so not only is there a shift in the person and not only is it in the plural, but the very first word in Greek is actually the word You And so John is really emphasizing here the the fact that he's moved from the hypothetical third person into the very pastoral, into the very individual sort of, not not individual, but but the the very sort of uh, applicable uh, message to the church, to us in uh, particular. And so unlike those who deny the son, which is the the context of verses 22 through 23, unlike these false teachers, unlike these people that John would call antichrist, John expects something different of his readers. Unlike them, third person, he expects something different of us. And so he speaks here in the second person. He expects for us to do what? To go back. To return to the sources, to let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, to go back to the sources. These false teachers, these antichrists, were proclaiming these novel, these new, these creative, these innovative distortions, these perversions of the gospel. And so John would say, don't pay attention to that. Instead, hear and take heed of what was from the beginning, Now, John is writing this in the first century, most likely to churches which are in Asia Minor, which would now be considered Turkey. And residents of the first century, as you might know, didn't have the entire Bible, They didn't have a Bible there sitting in their laps that's leather bound and all of those kinds of things because the Bible is still in the process of being written. And so if you lived in Ephesus, for example, you might have the book of Ephesians. You might have 1 and 2 Timothy because Timothy was stationed in uh, Ephesus. You might have one of the Gospels and that might be it. So when John is writing in this context, he speaks about what you heard through the apostolic proclamation, but if he were writing this to us, if he were writing this to the 21st century residents of McKinney, he wouldn't necessarily say, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Instead, he would say, let what you read in the Bible abide in you. Those are parallel sort of concepts. What what the residents of the first century had heard, the apostolic message that they heard in the beginning, would be very similar to what we read in Scripture. And so those are similar sort of parallel concepts. Ideas, which means, which implies that we can't ever escape or neglect the role of theology. That truth and theology and doctrines and so forth are to abide in us. That words matter, words and concepts are to abide in us. Let what you heard from the beginning, let what you read in the Bible, let these things abide in you. We talked about this a little bit last week. If someone comes to you and says, you shouldn't be dogmatic about doctrine. You shouldn't care about theology. You should just love Jesus. What should be your response? Which Jesus? Which Jesus are you talking about in that moment? Are you talking about the Jesus that the early church heretic Arius proclaimed? This Jesus who is a created being? Are you talking about the Jesus that uh, the Mormons uh, proclaim? That, uh, that teach that Jesus was the brother of Satan? Are you teaching, uh, should we just love the Jesus that the Jehovah's Witnesses talk about? Who was the archangel Michael who later became a man? Or the Jesus of Islam who is just a prophet? Or if you say, just love others, why do we have to l- talk about theology? Why do we have to do all this doctrine stuff? Why can't we just love others? Well, then you ask the question, well, how do you love? How do you love someone who's abiding in sin? How do you love someone that you disagree with? Is it loving or is it unloving to discipline your kids? Is church discipline loving or unloving? You see, even whenever you make a statement like you should just love Jesus or you should love others, you have to do theology. Everyone is a theologian. You can be a good theologian, you can be a bad theologian, You have to be a theologian. Even the person who says there is no God is making a theological statement about the existence of God. Theology is inescapable. In the first century, you have these creative, innovative, novel, false teachings that are being uh, declared. These things have crept into the church. So John says, don't pay attention to these new things, go back to where you began. Go back to the beginning. You don't need that which is novel and new, some fresh insight into Christianity. You need what you heard from the beginning. And the reason this is so essential, the reason this is so important is because our beliefs, our ideas, our thoughts of God have consequences. They have implications for our lives. For example, I love I adore my daughter and my son but my daughter's older and so I uh, can actually have somewhat of a rational conversation uh, with her and so if I tell my daughter Larkin if I tell her don't play in the street because a car can hit you it makes every difference in the world whether or not she believes in that moment that daddy is good and that daddy knows what he's talking about because if she doesn't believe that I'm good and I know what I'm talking about she's going to run into the street and that's going to have dire consequences Or if I tell Larkin to jump from the window of a burning building and I will catch her, it makes every difference in the world whether or not she actually believes that that building is on fire and that I'm strong enough to catch her. You see, our ideas are not merely academic fodder. They are profoundly important for the way that we live our lives. You cannot separate the heart from the head. You cannot separate our ideas with the implications of those ideas with the way that we Live. So may what you heard in the beginning or in our context, what we read in the Bible, abide in us. Now, this word abide is not a word that you probably use all that uh, often. It means to dwell together, to remain, or to stay fun fact, even though John only wrote about 20% of the New Testament, about 60% of all uses of this word are actually found in John's writings. And whenever it's actually translated as abide, 40 out of 44 instances are found in John. So this is a very Johannine word. John loves this word in particular. Why is it? Why is it that John loves this word in particular? I think the reason is because he's expecting his readers who are reading 1 John to think back to the gospel of John. I think the reason is because he wants us to remember John 15. If you're going to go back to the beginning, there is no better place to go back to than the gospel that begins, in the beginning was the word. And so chapter 15 of John's gospel is saturated with the word abide. In fact, 11 times in that one chapter, we run into that word. Let's look at it now, uh, starting in verse 4. This is Jesus speaking here to his disciples, and he says, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, pay attention to that phrase there, my words abide. Abide in you, that's a similar concept to what we're reading in 1 John. And my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, I think that John is expecting us to read John 15 into the context of 1 John chapter 2 and drawing our attention back to this passage in particular. And the image that he gives there is of a vine and of branches. And the illustration is as a branch, if you were to simply cut it off from the vine, if you were to cut it off from a tree or whatever it might be, what does it do? It withers, it dies. So is anyone who is cut off from Christ. You cannot survive apart from the vine. That's the imagery here. Anyone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't abide in Christ. That's the metaphor in John 15. But notice in 1 John that uh, John's going to kind of change the imagery, kind of change the metaphor, tackle it from a different perspective. Because here, it isn't us abiding in Christ. Here, it's let what we heard from the beginning abide in us. Let Christ's word abide in us. Now, that might seem initially like he's just stretched or broken the image. That might seem like it's a different image altogether. On one hand, you have us abiding in Christ. On the other hand, you have Christ's word abiding in us. That might seem like it's two totally different ideas, but they're not. They're actually two complementary ways of expressing the same reality. Here's what I mean. Why is it that a branch has to abide in the vine? Why is it? If you're familiar with botany, if you're familiar with any of these sorts of things, well, the reason is because the vine is what provides the nutrients, what provides the water to give life to the branch. That's what's happening here. So you could say that the branch must abide in the vine, or you could say that water and nutrients must abide in the branch. Those are two different ways of saying the same thing. The branch has to abide in the vine. Another way that you could say that is that water and nutrients must abide in the in the branch and the only way that happens is if you're connected to the vine likewise that same illustration with the christian to abide in christ john 15 is to allow the word of christ to dwell in us first john 2. two different ways of saying the same thing communicating the same image so that's the what that's the what that john is talking about that we are to let the word of god Abide in us. Let what we heard from the beginning, let what we read in the Bible abide in us. What about the how? We've talked about the what. What about the how? How do we let the word abide in us? Well, that should be obvious if you're paying attention to the, uh, the, the 21st century application of this, which would be to read Scripture so the way that we are to let the word abide in us is by studying it, by pondering it, by reading it, by memorizing it, by meditating on it, by listening to sermons or theological equipping classes, even listening to and singing theologically rich songs. In fact, Paul actually is gonna make that connection between the word of Christ dwelling in us and us singing is gonna make that explicit in the book of Colossians. Look at Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So notice that the word is to dwell in you. Different word, but same concept as abide. The word is to abide in you. The word is to dwell in you. Notice also, this role of community, I think this is one of the facets uh, of applica- uh, applying this passage that's often overlooked, the role of community. Look in Colossians 3, it says, teaching and admonishing one another. Or in 1 John, remember what we talked about, that is that the pronouns there are not singular, as in you singular, they're plural, as in y'all or you guys, right? And so there, there is this collective, there's this corporate sense In which my application of this text is not merely for Jeff Ashley to say, how does the Word of Christ dwell in Jeff Ashley, but instead for me to look around this room and say, how am I going to help the Word of Christ dwell in Paul Mathis? How am I going to help it dwell in Steve Williams and Karen Williams or in the Simmonses? Or at Evans Blanc and on and on we could go as we just look around the room. There's this collective sense, this corporate reality to which we are called to make disciples of each other, that we would collectively hunger and thirst for each other to fulfill this command. This is part of the reasons that we commend you to community groups. We encourage you to be in community groups here, to let the Word of God abide in you through community, iron sharpening iron. That's why we also encourage, in addition to community groups, informal opportunities. There are myriad ways that you can do this informally besides community groups. For example, I have five guys. We meet every other week, and uh, and we read books together. We get together, we discuss them, and we memorize Scripture together. What are we doing? We're trying to let the Word of God dwell in us. Let what we heard from the beginning, let what we read in the Bible, abide in us. So come to services. Come to theological quipping. Join a community group, talk to a staff member about discipleship, start a little informal Bible study and so forth. There are myriad ways for the church to collectively let the word of God abide in us, but the point is that we have to do something somehow, some way in order to fulfill this command. Now you might object and you think, but I don't have time. I don't have time to let the word of God abide in me. Let me just be really honest with you. You have time. What you're lacking is not time. What you're lacking is desire. What you're lacking is effort. If you are captivated by something, you make time for it. That is a universal truth in your life. Whatever you most love, you make time for. I want to give two quick historical uh, anecdotes I happened upon years ago, and, uh, and they have been Challenging and encouraging and convicting all at the same time about uh, how the saints historically would make time when it comes to reflecting upon, to pondering, studying Scripture. The first involves Susanna Wesley. You might have heard of her before. She is the, uh, she was the mother of uh, John and Charles Wesley who started the Methodist Church. In addition to John and Charles, she had 17 other kids. 17 other kids, uh, a few of whom died in infancy. But suffice to say, she's pretty busy, right? All right, we have uh, a lot of parents here with a lot of kids. None of you have 19 kids, all right? Uh, And and so she is extremely busy, so what would she do? Did she just simply say, I don't have time to read Scripture? No, you know what she'd do? She'd get a chair, she'd pull it in the middle of the room, she'd sit down with her Bible, she'd pull her apron up over her head like she's in some sort of little tent, And that's where she would read. In her kid's note, when mommy's in the tent meeting with God, I don't mess with her. And that was it. That was all the time that she could possibly get. Another uh, anecdote that I found uh, to be super encouraging, this is a story that was told about Hudson Taylor, who was an early uh, missionary to China in the 19th century. And, uh, and so this was a story, an anecdote that was told by his son of him. He said every night when he was a kid, he would remember they would go to bed after a day of ministry. They're absolutely exhausted. They would go to bed And he would be awoken some nights because he would hear a light being struck about 2 a.m. And his dad would be pouring over his Bible, little two-volume Bible that he carried with him everywhere from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. because that's the only time he knew that he could actually be undisturbed in order to study God's Word. You have time. The question is, do you have the desire? Do you have the desire? What's the point? My point is that those who love God make time to abide on his word, to let his word abide in them. Are you ever in the shower? Please say yes. Then you could just simply print off a page of scripture, you could put it in a Ziploc bag, you could take that up to your shower wall and you can read it then. Are you ever in the car? Well, then you can listen to the Bible on audio. You can have a little uh, passage of scripture there that you tape on your dashboard and you memorize as you're driving. You can listen to sermons or theological equipping classes. Are you ever mowing the lawn? Are you ever going for a jog? Are you ever washing dishes or something? You have time. Are you going to take advantage of that time in order to let the word of God abide in you? Cut out TV for a season. Get up an hour earlier, stay up an hour later. Those who love the word of God abide on the word of God. So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let's keep going. Next section there. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In the previous sentence, John is going to tell the church to abide in the Word, and we considered how to do that, the collective corporate sort of aspect and also the individual responsibility that you uh, have to read and memorize and meditate on and study and ponder and discuss uh, Scripture. But now he kind of tells us the why. He's because, because, he says, because if we do, then we will abide in the Son and in the Father, Now, does this mean that if you don't memorize Scripture, that you won't abide in Christ, that you'll be cut off from Christ? No, that's not his point at all. What is his point? In order to really understand that, we need to understand uh, if-then statements in the Bible. We call these conditionals because there's a condition that needs to be met. If this, that's the condition, then that. And so let's get nerdy for a a second. In a conditional statement, again, we said there is an if aspect and there is a then aspect aspect. And, uh, and so, if this, then that. The if content, what comes after the if is called the uh, protassis all right? So, you have if protassis then what's called the apodosis, all right? And there are various ways that the protassis relates to the apodosis, that the if relates to the then, the one that we are uh, far and away most uh, familiar with is cause and effect. For example, if I say, if you slap me, then I will cry. The protasis there is you slap me, the apodosis is I will cry. What causes the other? You slapping me and I will cry. Now it might also be true that if I cry, then you will slap me, That's also a cause and effect, in which case you're mad because I'm crying and so you slap me again or something like that. But my crying is the effect of your slapping or my slapping, your slapping is the effect of my uh, crying. There are tons of examples of this cause and effect relationship in the Bible. Uh, kind of a, a familiar one is you might be familiar with whenever uh, Satan, uh, during the temptation of, uh, of Jesus, when Satan is having this conversation with Jesus, and Satan says, if you will fall down and worship me, then I will give you this kingdom. That's a cause and effect if-then sort of statement. But imagine, that's not the only way that these if-then statements function in the Bible. Imagine that I say, if Zach is dressed up as a pirate, then It's Halloween. All right. If I make that statement, I'm not giving a cause and effect sort of statement there, as if kids around the world are waiting to see Zach put on his pirate pants before they know whether they can actually go trick-or-treating or not. Instead, this is an example of what's called an evidence-inference, if-then conditional statement. Evidence-inference conditional statement. So the relationship between the protasis and the apodosis isn't cause and effect. Instead, it's evidence Inference. In this case, Zach putting on this particular outfit is not the cause of Halloween, but instead it's evidence that it already is Halloween. This is important because this is what's actually happening here in this particular passage in 1 John. The word abiding in you isn't the cause of your abiding in Christ. It's the evidence that you actually already abide in Christ, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then we can reasonably conclude on the basis of that fact that you are abiding in God. So this doesn't mean, don't read this passage as if your relationship with the triune God is dependent on your faithfulness. Salvation and sanctification are always about God's faithfulness to you and not about your faithfulness to God. Your faithfulness to God is merely an evidence, an indication of God's previous faithfulness to you. If you are of God, then His Word will abide in you, and if His Word abides in you, then you will abide in Him. That's the point that he's making here. And notice, again, this note of Trinitarian theology that is going to play throughout the book of 1 John. Sometimes it's really loud. Sometimes it's subtle and in the background, but there's this, uh, this uh, Trinitarianism that's going to be in the background throughout the book of 1 John, the un- underlying foundation of the whole book. You have father and son, and though he's not specifically mentioned here, the spirit We talked about this a number of times, that the one true God, the creator of the world, the father of uh, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who redeemed Israel from Egypt, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, is triune. That is the only God. The only God who truly exists is a triune God who has eternally existed as father, son, and spirit. So earlier we talked about some of the importance of theology, that our ideas have consequences, that they have implications. In very few areas of theology is this more prevalent and profound and pronounced than when it comes to Trinitarianism, which is why, interestingly enough, the Trinity is one of the absolutely only doctrines upon which all three branches of Christianity have historically agreed. Whether you're Roman Catholic or you're Eastern Orthodox or you are Protestant, you agree on the Trinity. Why all three branches of Christianity agree on it and, by the way, why none of the cults agree on it. All of the cults disagree on the topic of Trinitarianism. So let's talk about why this is so important. I'm not saying that you have to fully understand the Trinity to be saved. Good luck fully understanding it. No one fully understands it, but you do have to believe it. Imagine, uh, imagine for a second, just to give an illustration, imagine for a second you have a sweater. I love talking about sweaters. I love uh, sweaters. The temperature here in uh, in the DFW Metroplex drops below 80, and people go crazy, right? They're like buying snow chains and uh, like hoarding up on piled, uh, on uh, canned goods, and uh, and then they're pulling down these boxes with all of their winter clothes. And they're trying to force them on. And so imagine you go home and you take out this box and you pull out this nice, soft uh, sweater. And as you're looking at it, you notice a little loose thread. And so you wonder, what will happen if I pull on that thread? And sometimes you pull on a thread and it's just one little loose thread. And it just simply comes away and the, the sweater's no worse to wear. But other times you pull on it and you pull on it. It's kind of like a magician kind of pulling out Uh, the handkerchiefs or whatever it might be, and it just eventually unravels completely. So imagine that your belief system is like a sweater and you have some questions about the Trinity. Again, we all do, so that's not uncommon, but imagine that your questions are not just questions, they're more like accusations. And so you really start to doubt and disbelieve and question whether or not the deity of Christ is just this loose thread that we can just discard or whether or not, it unravels the entire sweater. What happens if you pull on it? Let's just go through a thought exercise for a second and imagine what would happen. The first thing you would notice is that if Christ isn't God, then he's a created being. Those are the only two things that exist. You have creator and created beings. That's it. That's the dividing line between God and humanity, creator and creature. And if he is not creator, then he is by definition a creature. So he's a created being, like Arius said, or the cults teach, or he's just a good prophet like in the Quran. So if Jesus isn't God, then he's just a human. And therefore, you begin to question, well, if he's just a human, can his sacrifice really atone for sins, for the sins of humanity? But let's put that aside for a second. In addition to that, he's only a human, but he's also a liar. Why? Because he claims to be God. So, he's not even a good teacher, which is what the liberal uh, theologians would say. He's not even a good teacher because he's a liar, and he's therefore sinful in that he lies, which means, again, in a second sense, his sacrifice certainly can't be sufficient because he's not even perfect. He's not an unblemished land, and I guess that means that Scripture is untrustworthy since it presents him as God. And if you don't have the Son, then you don't have the Father. So in just 10 seconds, we found if you pull this little thread on the deity of Christ, you lose the deity of Christ, you lose God, you lose salvation, you lose the Bible. We could keep going, but you get the point. What are you left with? A ball of useless theological yarn. That is it. If Jesus isn't God, if God isn't triune, you have no hope whatsoever. Speaking of hope, that's the content of the next verse Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. One of, some of you know this, but one of my favorite things to do on vacation is to, uh, to hike. I would love for that to be like a real hobby, to actually be able to go hiking all the time but I live in McKinney and that berm right there is like the highest point in all of uh, of McKinney. So it's just a hobby that I do whenever I'm on uh, vacation. I love it. In fact, last week when I was talking about eternal life, I used the illustration of hiking up this series of sequentially uh, higher mountains and somebody, uh, somebody responded and said, Jeff's idea of heaven is my idea of hell. To each their own, I guess. Uh, But I love hiking. And one of the things I love to do is I get to the top of a mountain and I just like to sit there and just sense the awe and wonder. Just be astonished at being able to see for miles around and be able to see the glory of mountains and trees and all of these uh, sorts of sights. And that's what this verse kind of represents to me. As I read this verse, I think of that. We've been hiking uh, in our time together this morning through this kind of somewhat tough terrain of talking about uh, conditional statements and protesis and apodosis, and we've been talking about Trinitarianism and the, the importance of holding fast to theological convictions. And so we arrive at what I think is a rewarding little rest stop along the way. So what I want us to do is I just want us to sit here for a bit and to gaze and to ponder at the glory around us as we consider the words promise and eternal life. Let's start with the word promise here. Literally, the passage in Greek reads, the promise that he has promised us. You have not only the noun, but you also have a verb there. The promise that he has promised us. So obviously, the idea of a promise is emphasized and essential here, especially when you consider that this word promise is actually not a very big Johannine word. Paul uses this word a lot John does not use this word a lot, and so the fact that he uses it here and emphasizes it shows that it's pretty important for him. The word promise is epangelia, which means the assurance of an agreement or a pledge or an obligation that someone puts himself under, an obligation that someone takes upon himself. And though it's one little word, epangelia, one little word, promise, on that one little word rests the entirety of our eternal hope, and life and joy. Here's why I say that, because we've all made promises. Every one of us in this room has made promises. And in addition to that, every single one of us has broken promises. And yet here's the reality that our hope is built on, that God never breaks promises. It's contrary to his nature, It's contrary to his very nature to break promises. He makes promises. He makes promises all the time. In fact, Scripture is filled with promises. He never breaks them. In fact, he can't do so. It's weird to speak of God not being able to do so, but there are a number of things that the Bible says he can't do, and this is one of them. He can't break his promise. In the book of Titus, Paul speaks about the idea of promise and eternal life. In Titus 1, 2, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, listen to this, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Notice what he says, God never lies. Not just that he never lies, as if maybe he will sometime in the future, but he cannot lie. It's contrary to his very nature. So he cannot lie, and that means everything to us or at least it should, because there is no more powerful way to fight lust, to fight despair, to fight pride, to fight greed, to fight fear, to fight anxiety, and a host of other sins like the promises of God. If you really want to experience freedom in these areas, the way to do it is not just to concentrate on all the commands of God, but instead to reflect upon, to ponder, to meditate on the promises that God makes to his people. That's what ultimately brings about sanctification, not merely God's commands, but God's promises, the promises that he makes to his people. My daughter's in a stage where where just about any time I tell her to do something, she wants to ask the question, why? And honestly, it can be frustrating at times. I just want to say, because I said so. But the reality is God is not frustrated by our questions why? In fact, he invites us to ask the question why because he's actually already given us the answer why in scripture. Why is a great question. Why should you love your spouse? Why should you discipline your kids? Why should you tell the truth? Why should you fight lust? Because God has made promises to his people. That's the reason. He's made promises of life, he's made promises of hope, he's made promises of joy. Why does Paul say in the book of Philippians that he counts everything as loss? Philippians 3.8, indeed I count everything as loss. Listen to this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. The promise of knowing Christ is the reason that he counts everything as loss. Why does Isaiah tell us to fear not? He says, fear not, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why does Jesus tell us to not call attention to our giving and fasting and praying? He says, your father who sees in secret will reward you in Matthew 6. We could keep going throughout scripture and we would run out of time because this is literally the grammar of the gospel. God makes promises to his people, and those promises are the ground of our hope and the fuel of our obedience. We've been talking about eschatology in theological equipping class, and one of the things that we've talked about is that eschatology, at the end of the day, is not really concerned with dates and times and events in the Middle East and identifying this particular world figure or something like that. Eschatology, at its very essence, is about the promise of God the promise that one day Jesus will return, the promise that one day we will dwell with our king, the promise that one day there will be no mourning, there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, there will be eternal life and eternal joy. Eschatology is about the promises of God. And lest we understand, it's God's promises to us. Our hope rests on promises, but not our promises to God, instead God's promises to us. Notice John's, John writes, the promise he Made to us. Or again, literally, the promise he promised us. In other words, you're not saved by your promises that you make to God. You're saved by God's promises that he makes to you. You're not saved by your promise to love him. You're not saved by your promise to obey him. You're not saved by your promise to believe in him. You're saved by God's faithfulness to you and God's faithfulness to his promises. You're not saved by the strength of your commitment to Christ. You are saved by the strength of Christ's commitment to you. And trust me, the omnipotent, sovereign creator of all things is pretty strong. Other religions are concerned with our promises that we make to God. That's the foundation, that's the the basis of most other world religions, the promises that you make to God in whatever sense they convey of God. Christianity is unique among all the religions that it's not founded on the promises that we make, but rather the promises that God makes to us, grounded in the historical reality of the resurrection as a demonstration of the certainty of those promises. And what's the result? What's the reward of those promises? Eternal life. That's what he says there. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What is that? We spent an hour on that in theological equipping last week, so we obviously don't have time uh, to go through that. It wasn't planned that we were going to teach on eternal life in theological equipping and then talk about it here. It just happened to work out uh, like that. But uh, just a few things that I did want you to uh, know from that lesson. I'd encourage you to go back uh, and listen to it if you have questions about eternal life, as we all should. When we talk about eternal life, we're talking about a noun, life, and also an adjective, which is eternal. And the adjective does what adjectives do, which is that it modifies the noun. It clarifies the noun. So eternal tells us something about the type of life that God has promised. Life is the promise. Eternal is the adjective that clarifies or modifies that. So, let's talk about the adjective eternal. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that we talked about last week is that it is both quantitative and also qualitative. By quantitative, I mean uh, that the adjective eternal asks the question, how long? How long is this life going to last And so the adjective eternal answers that question for us. The word eon in English is actually derived from this Greek word, ionios, uh, in uh, in Greek. What's an eon? What's a long period of time? Technically, uh, at least in regards to astronomy, it's a billion years. But as it's used in the Bible, it doesn't just refer to a billion years. In fact, the word forever that you uh, you encounter in Scripture is the same word, and whenever you see the, the, the phrase forever and ever in the Bible, it's the same word that's doubled. Eon and eon is basically the idea. So what does eternal mean? Get this, it means eternal. It means infinite. It means inexhaustible. It means unceasing. It means everlasting, forever, infinite. Remember the line from Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, what's the next line? We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Now I'm a quarter Japanese, and I love karaoke, so the idea of eternity of singing appeals to me. So for some of you, that's kind of like eternal hiking. You're out. You don't want that whatsoever. All right But I love that sort of idea, and that's why it's so important to recognize not only is the adjective "eternal" uh, quantitative, but it's also a qualitative. Adjective. Quantitative asks the question, how long? How long will you experience this life? Qualitative asks the question, how good? How good will this life be? Raise your hand if you ever get bored. All right? Some of you literally never get bored. All right? That's a great gift to have. That's like the ultimate. My wife and I, obviously, a a long time we debate uh, what's the greatest superpower. I think that's it. You've just identified to never get uh, bored. But most of us get bored. Now imagine being bored for an entire decade. Or a century, not like waiting for a web page to load. Board, right? Our capacity for experiencing boredom is greatly exacerbated in uh, in our culture today. But like waiting at the DMV before you had a smartphone, sort of uh, bored. Like sitting in traffic uh, before radio existed, sort of bored, or something like that. All right, think of that sort of bored, and now extend that not for a minute or two minutes or a day or two days, but like for a century. And so you might begin to think, well, if it's just everlasting life. That doesn't sound like that's a very good promise, especially for those of you who are suffering, who have some sort of affliction. And you're like, if, if, if by eternal life, all that means is a, a, an everlasting existence similar to what I'm experiencing now with depression, with despair, with cancer, with conflict with my spouse, with whatever it is, fill in the blank with whatever it is that you're dealing with. That doesn't seem to be all that appealing. That's where it's necessary that you recognize that not only does eternal refer to the quantitative difference between that life and our current life, but also a qualitative difference. It will not merely be forever. It will also be unceasing and infinite joy and pleasure. That's What eternal also means. So, this promise of infinite, eternal, unending, inexhaustible, indescribable, everlasting, ever increasing joy should encourage us. It should comfort us. It should motivate us to fill ourselves with the word, to endure suffering, to fight sin, to not give in to any of the temptations that Zach talked about in the sermon last week. Temptations to drift away in the midst of persecution. Temptations to drift away because of doubts that you have that you refuse to get answered. Fears that you have. Prosperity that you experience or adversity that you experience. Eternal life is the solution to those things because it tells you I can endure for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Because what God has promised me is an infinite existence that is infinitely good, our God is good, and He does good, always and only good, and so He promises eternal good, eternal joy to those who love Him. And as you and I meditate on those promises, those promises are what motivate us to faithfulness, so that the Word of God might abide in us as evidence that we abide in the Son and in the Father. That's the message of 1 John 2, 24 through 25. So let's pray as the men come forward to serve uh, communion. Father, I thank you that you are a God who makes promises. You don't have to make promises to us. You don't have to do things the way that you did them. You could have made your faithfulness to us dependent upon our faithfulness to you and yet in your sovereign mercy and grace to us, you determined that you would simply pour out your mercy and grace to us in spite of the fact that we are wretched and wicked and evil and utterly deserving of condemnation. And yet, you have rescued us from condemnation if we love and trust your Son, and you've delivered us not only into everlasting existence, but everlasting life, in joy, in hope, in prosperity, in abundance, and good. And so, we're grateful that you are God who makes promises, and that not merely do you make those promises, but you are always perfectly fulfilling them. So, I pray that you would help us, Lord to abide upon your word and abide upon the reality of your promises. We ask because you're a good God who gives good gifts. We pray in Christ's name, amen.